Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. It's February 23rd and I'm your host Ella. In the studios behind the mics on my own this morning, which is a bit lonely after our full house last week. Uh, But not to worry, we've got some great content from all three of us at Wednesday Breakfast. So today we're going to start off hearing a little about the Ukraine crisis. We're going to hear from Jacques and Jennifer from 3CR's Think Again program. Um, And they were looking at the way the media is reporting on the crisis at the Ukraine-Russia border. Um, And they asked whether the hype and rhetoric around the tensions on the border is part of an information war led by Western leaders, particularly the US and NATO. And then around 7.30 on the show, I'm going to be speaking with Dina Grant-Smith about multi-level marketing and the financial risks associated and a lot of the tactics used by these big companies. Then at 7.50, we've got Claudia dialing in. She's going to be speaking with uh, Rouge Amidi. Uh, from Justice Connect about a new technology tool they're building, which recognises the everyday speech patterns of diverse groups in order to increase access to legal help. And then to round off the show at around 10 past eight, Alice is going to be speaking with Corinda Taylor, CEO of the Aboriginal Controlled Health Service named First People's Health and Wellbeing, about the Take Your Shot campaign, which focuses on spreading health information to Indigenous communities around Australia and looks to tackle the lagging vaccination rates of Indigenous communities. So, a jam-packed show we've got planned for this morning. I'm thinking we get started with a song. Uh, This is Hula Rock. Thank you. 
strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and before the break, we had Hula Rock from the Lou Howard All-Stars. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Next up, we're going to be taking a look at the way the media is reporting on the crisis at the Ukraine-Russian border. The dispatch of troops by Russia into Ukraine's separatist regions is claimed to be an act of peacekeeping by the Eastern power. But Western political leaders call it an attack on Ukraine's sovereignty and a violation of international law. This paradigm of peacemaker versus aggressor is a key feature of media coverage of the conflict and one that we're going to take a closer look at this morning. Last Friday, 3CR's Think Again team analysed the Ukraine-Russia border tensions in terms of the good-evil narrative, raising serious questions about the role played by political powers and the media in shaping popular interpretations of the conflict. Jennifer Burrell and Jacques Boulay are the hosts of Think Again, which airs on 3CR every Friday at 10am. We're going to share their alternative analysis of the events in Russia, Ukraine in two segments, so stick around to hear what they have to say. We pick up their discussion as they begin to unpick the knots of this complex political information rally. 
This segment was recorded before Russia's dispatch of troops to the Ukraine regions of Donostik and Luhansk and provides an alternative view of the state of affairs. We want to have a look at the media, which have been rather hysterical of late, whipping up a frenzy about international crisis. And this time, it's the Ukraine-Russian border. We have already discussed the orchestrated Western, especially US and Anglosphere-led anti-China campaigns, especially the AUKUS, Five Eyes and Quad initiatives. And now it's Russia's turn. Apparently, there has been a sudden ramp up of Russian aggression, a build up of troops on the Ukrainian border and an increase in threatening talk in the diplomatic exchanges. Presumably, this has necessitated, quote unquote, defensive actions by NATO and by the US and its allies. Well, that's the story, but let's unpick it a bit. Mm, So firstly... Just to refresh listeners' memories, NATO is a North Atlantic Treaty Organisation started in 1949 to, quote, guarantee the freedom and security of its members through political and military means, unquote. It was especially intended to contain the communist threat after World War II. Initially, it consisted of 12 countries, all West European, the US and Canada, and they agreed to coordinate their militaries. When West Germany was allowed to rearm and become a member in 1977, Russia and Eastern Europe countries established the Warsaw Pact. All of which seemed to become a bit superfluous after the fall of the so-called Iron Curtain and the disintegration of the Eastern Bloc by the end 1980s. Yeah, and back to the present and Russia's presumed aggression. Seth Malik in Friday Culture Limited on the 29th of January simply says that there has been no sudden act of aggression by Russia. Quote, Russia has regularly placed troops on its border with Ukraine and vice versa, unquote. According to the Ukrainian President Zelensky, the level of threat hasn't changed. So how extraordinary when taking into account all the media coverage that it has attracted, including in the Australian media. And there's more. President Zelensky claimed that, quote, his country's current problems came from the West rather than from the East, unquote. So secondly, who really is the aggressor? Mm -hmm. Is it Russia putting the Western powers on the defensive and galvanising them into action by a new threat? To look at that, we need to go back to the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989-90. Seth Malik explains how the Soviet Union, then under Gorbachev, and the Western powers agreed to not take advantage of the situation by aggressively expanding. In short... Moscow would not move west, and the west would not move east. Mm-hmm. Quote, not one inch, unquote. That was the phrase used three times by U.S. Secretary of State Baker under Bush, the older, as president, to describe the agreement, and later that was agreed to by UK's Thatcher and by Helmut Kohl of Germany and other Western voices. George Kennan who was the US-based architect of the first 
Cold War between the US and the USSR, he had this to say at the end of that Cold War by the end of the 80s. Quote, expanding NATO would be the most fateful error in the entire post-Cold War era. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, to have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy, to restore the atmosphere of Cold War to East-West relations and to impel Russian foreign policies in directions that are decidedly not to our liking. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that, yeah. So that's a, a a big mouthful. But basically, Jacques, you'd, would you say he was warning against the temptation for the West to expand NATO toward Russia? Absolutely, that was what he was saying, and that was mm-hmm. agreed to, as I said before, or as we said before, uh, by uh, the other powers. Mm-hmm. So I guess something must have changed the thinking of the US and NATO. Um, which have been going back on their agreement not to expand eastward for some time now. And they have been vastly expanding eastwards, justifying Mm. their actions by saying that they are only doing or making defensive steps and that that expansion expresses expresses the wishes of the newly independent Eastern European countries. Mm. Which really reminds me of my interview with Aboriginal author Claire G. Coleman a few weeks ago. That was um, the 28th of January. She described a creek in Australia, I think New South Wales, named Attack Creek, which is a place where Aboriginal people actually defended themselves against white attackers. And as she pointed out, it should have been called Defence Creek. Yes, in fact, it has become quite clear that the NATO and its most powerful members never had the intention of entering a peaceful coexistence with Russia. Indeed, starting already under the Clinton presidency during the 1990s, NATO's eastward expansion from 16 members before 1997 led to the gradual inclusion of an additional 14 countries earlier belonging to or linked to the USSR. Mm-hmm. Altogether, NATO now counts 30 member states. Mm-hmm. So from 16 to 30 members, that's quite an increase. Yeah, it's basically doubling. And barely hidden efforts have been made to further expand NATO's reach to include Ukraine in its ambit. All those countries now have their armies integrated in the military capacity of NATO, and they quite literally surround Russia territorially, quite comparable to what the US and its allies are doing by surrounding China with about 280 military bases, mm-hmm. as we mentioned a few weeks ago. Russia quite understandably feels threatened and increasingly surrounded and has repeatedly told NATO to stop building missile bases on or close to its borders. And it asked NATO to withdraw its troops from Poland, Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia. Mm-hmm. It is also asking NATO to clarify that it is not grooming Ukraine to join the NATO, which would be blatantly against the agreement by the West to not expand eastwards. Remember, not by an inch was the commitment all sides agreed to. Today we're talking about Western expansionism 
is particularly by the US and NATO, which seem to be drumming up war on the Ukraine-Russia border. Yeah, I guess we've been arguing that a supposed imminent threat by Russia on the Ukrainian border is a bit of a beat-up, part of an information war to justify Western expansionist moves. But Jacques, an article in Al Jazeera recently on the 9th of February states that there is an amassing of troops by Russia along the Ukraine border, but that it is not to prepare for invasion. It's a kind of chess move by the Russian president. Harun Yilmaz argues that Moscow is trying to force Western countries to sit down and negotiate on European security. Um, This journalist says uh, the Kremlin worries about the possibility of the US deploying missiles on Ukrainian soil and it wants to limit military exercises close to Russian borders. So, Jacques, I guess my question is, which is it? Is the West making up a sudden increase in Russian troops along the Ukrainian border to justify its own expansion? Or has there really been an increase in Russian troops as a type of chess move by Russia to force the West to negotiate on security um, because it's feeling under threat? Or was it initially a beat up by the West and then responded to by Russia with an increase in troops, uh, albeit that have been there in some form for a long time anyway? So what do well, you it think? could be all of the above, I would say, but we need to not forget that the, uh, the build-up of uh, armaments around Russia was actually the West doing missiles all around Russia and armies which are now totally integrated in the NATO system. Mm. So actually, if you think about it, it could be easily understood as a Russian response. And yes, they may be indeed amplifying their military presence around the border, therefore. Mm. And I guess also we should tease out when we're talking about military hardware and troops. That's right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that if you have a a build-up of military hardware... um, Mm -hmm often there's not much that troops would be able to do to counter them anyway. That's um, right. The missiles countering. are already yeah. Yes. The Western missiles are already there and they exactly. just need to push a button. Yeah. So the big question for us, I guess, here is um, talking about uh, information war in the media. Why aren't we hearing about the past and the ongoing expansionist aggression by the West? Why has it our own press being so one-sided and I would say hysterical, especially when you think there are uh, conflicts all over the world. And this Mm -hmm. has been a very um, central focus. You'd think it was the only border in contention in the whole world. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we've been hearing a discussion about the way in which Western media outlets have shaped the crisis narrative around the current tensions at the Russia-Ukraine border. We've heard some alternative views about the role Western powers and NATO have played in the lead-up to the current situation, which challenge popular perceptions about who is the provocateur, sorry, it's early, and um, who is acting in self-defence. This discussion is led by Jacques Boulet and Jennifer Burrell from 3CR's Think Again program. They return now to look at why the West may have acted in this way and how the Australian government is contributing to the political banter in another contested region. China. So why are we hearing so much about supposed military ambitions of Russia 
that the West is uh, supposedly impelled to respond to, Sharp? What do you when think? When even the Ukrainian President Zelensky says they aren't happening. Mm. And he openly accused the West of being the reason for all the commotion. Yeah. So going back to Chomsky's words, which we started the program with, in large part, you, you know, it is in large part an information war, war which we are witnessing. And we have discussed that in a program on the 21st of January, yeah. identifying information wars as one of the ways in which the US maintains and extends its own global dominance. Yeah, and remembering that an information war involves control over the storyline, control over the storyline put out to the population, which is pretty much disguised propaganda. And Noam Chomsky does use the word propaganda, actually, in describing Mm -hmm. this. That's right. Or fake news, as so often proclaimed by Trump, who was busily making it up himself. Mm -hmm. So information war um, invents and presents a story of goodies and baddies, with our side being the goodies, of course, which justifies a, a lot of things. Yeah, and these stories are useful internally and externally to the country when repeated and confirmed often enough in the right forums and when alternative facts are not available. Yeah, Jacques, all facts are presented as opinions from being suspicious in some way and from suspect sources, which I think has happened Mm. a lot in the commentary on this Ukraine-Russian conflict. the, The script is clear. Everything that emanates from a rogue state and I'll put that in quotes, is false or untrustworthy. And anything that comes from us, the West, is seen as true. And it is also handy and so much simpler to focus all that badness onto the bad leaders of those states, like Mm. Putin or Xi. They are dictators anyway, Mm -hmm. whose dreams of world control are repeated and asserted as compared with us, who are real freedom-loving Democrats, aren't we? Yeah, and we love our free press, don't we, Jacques? <laughs> so um, Alfred Desires has written a great article about this. He titled it NATO as Religion. Desires has impressive credentials. He's a professor at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and he's a UN expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order. So Desires sees a current US-NATO-Ukraine-Russian controversy, as he calls it, he sees it not as a new controversy but as a logical continuation of NATO's expansionist policies since the fall of the Soviet Union, which we've been talking about. And highlighting uh, the close ties between the US and NATO and, and in fact, the dominance of the US in the NATO context, Desire says that NATO's approach implements the US claim to have a mission to export its socio-economic model to other countries, in fact, to the whole world. Yeah, Alfred Desire's laments the myopia of the rest of the West in uncritically accepting US and NATO narratives about what is happening, even while these narratives have been proven to be inaccurate or even proven to be deliberate lies. And he wonders how this is possible. How does the supposedly respectable media get away 
with spreading these stories and how can we keep accepting them even when past lies are exposed? Mm. The title of his article, NATO as Religion, pretty much describes his general conclusion. Yeah. Within this NATO religion, NATO are seen as the anointed ones and anything and everything is framed with NATO as the good guys, the ones with the halos. But this narrative requires constant lying to to um, keep it going. So just one example is the well-known example is the illegal invasion of Iraq, which was in violation of international law. This required the lie that the Iraqi leadership was harbouring weapons of mass destruction, which turned out, as we know, not to be true at all. Yeah, that's only one. So why haven't we become more critical since? Well, if NATO is a religion, we take its pronouncements on faith mm-hmm. and lying becomes honourable, whilst questioning statements of presumed fact becomes unpatriotic. Yeah, so Jacques, up is down and down is up, as in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, crimes committed by NATO over the past 73 years are not crimes, but at worst, understandable errors in the execution of noble intentions. Mm. So despite all the complicity of much of the Western media in this propaganda, Alfred Desire suggests, quote, NATO's expansion and non-stop provocation of Russia was and is a dangerous geopolitical error, a betrayal of the trust owed by us to the Russian people. Worse yet, it's a betrayal of the hope for peace shared by the majority of humanity, unquote. Mm. So returning to the real reasons for the present tensions, could it be that the free West can't cope with honest political and economic competition on a free world market? And afraid of losing that competition, grasps at the only weapon left, military dominance. Mm. And given its and other Western countries' internal troubles and predicaments, it West needs to deflect from those internal troubles and create outside enemies. The levels of confidence in internal political systems and processes has been plummeting about everywhere in the West. Inequality, rampant and blatant injustices, all made worse by the pandemic, have undermined the legitimacy of and our loyalty to the state Mm -hmm. and they make the need for external joint enemies absolutely necessary. And you mean China and Russia? That's right. And with the loss of power and the recognition of the global regulatory instruments, and I mean with that the United Nations institutions, the WTO and international justice bodies, crude nationalisms and populism feed the narratives of the virtuous West and of the NATO religion that goes furthermore unchallenged. Mm -hmm. Finally, turning to the Australian role in all of this, we already mentioned the Five Eyes, Orcas and the Quad, and our national leadership, or what passes for it, they think nothing of drumming up war with China, and now with Russia, of course, also, to improve their party's chances of re-election, especially our present defence minister, Peter Dutton, mm-hmm. gauging his own chances of possibly becoming prime minister himself, mm. which is all understandable, of course, 
given the debacles the government has been creating for itself and for the nation. The latest example, its religious discrimination bill disaster. Mm. A recent Guardian article title expresses it well. Peter Dutton has plumbed new and dangerous depth by suggesting China is backing Labour. And that's all we have time to share today from Jennifer Burrell and Jacques Boulay's analysis of the Russia-Ukraine border conflict. And you can catch the Think Again team on 3CR every Friday morning at 10am. And a big thank you to Jennifer and Jacques for lending us that audio to play here today. Uh, now we're going to take a listen to Normalizo. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about multi-level marketing and the financial risks associated.
Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on Nine four one nine eight three double seven. Three CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for Three CR Community Radio. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability, and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and before the break we heard Normalizo from Letter Mabulu. And now we're going to take a look at multi-level marketing companies, or MLMs as they're known. These companies come with a lot of appealing promises uh, to get rich and be your own boss, flexible hours, and a work-life balance. Uh, But for the vast majority of MLM sellers, this isn't the case. And these messages of optimism hide the reality at which they come with a lot of financial risk. 
So yesterday I spoke with Dina Grant-Smith, who's an Associate Professor at QUT and Deputy Director of the QUT Centre for Decent Work and Industry. And she's recently conducted some research into multi-level marketing companies and the people who use them. So I started by asking her to explain what MLMs are and how they compare to illegal pyramid schemes. While they may not be the same thing, they do seem to take a very similar shape. So what pyramid schemes do is that they actually rely on people recruiting more people beneath them, but they're not actually really selling any product or any service. So basically there's money flowing up, but there's no product or service that's uh, flowing out. Multi-level marketing, by contrast, actually in Australia to be legal has to be built around the sale of a product or a service. So the kinds of companies that I've been looking at that would be classed as multi-level marketing are ones that we're really familiar with. So there might be things like Tupperware or Thermomix. There's a whole host of companies that sell craft supplies like Stamping Up, for instance. And there's also others that sell lingerie or homewares. Probably the ones that we're most familiar with in terms of having a reputation for being more aggressive with their sales are companies like Amway, for instance, and Herbalife, which are also multi-level marketing companies that are present in Australia. So like a pyramid scheme, multi-level marketing companies do rely on individual consultants creating their own team of salespeople beneath them. So I guess it is a bit like a triangle because what you're trying to do is to increase your number of downlines. So the people who report to you so that you can get a portion of their sales as well as your own sales. So that's where the two are often compared to each other in that their structure is very hierarchical with a small number of people at the top and a large number of people down the bottom and criticisms that the further down the pyramid or the triangle that you are, the less likely you are to be making money from the pyramid scheme or the multi-level marketing company. And as you wrote in this article, MLMs typically have pretty complex commission and remuneration structures. So working out potential profit can actually be more difficult than you might imagine. Um, What did your research find about how much MLM consultants are typically making? So we found out that most people that we had surveyed were making less than $5,000 a year from their multi-level marketing business. And we think that that's probably a a fairly big overestimate of what they're making. Um, The reason we say this is that at least half of the people that we surveyed weren't including all of their costs when they were figuring out what their profit was. So we don't think the calculations are particularly accurate. If we were to look at similar studies that have been done in the United States, the kinds of money that people is making, again, is quite small. Uh, There are some estimates that sellers are making less than 70 cents per hour in the US, and those are ones that are actually making money. Other studies have said that 99% of uh, MLM sellers or consultants in the States are actually making a loss. So not even breaking even or making a profit. And um, yours isn't the first research to look at the financial reality of MLMs. um, And you do reference other studies in your article. Um, There's a lot of evidence showing that, as you said, the vast majority of MLM sellers make very little or no profit, but people are still joining them. And I think a big part of this is because MLMs are very good at and very skilled at drawing people in and selling optimism. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the recruitment tactics used by MLMs? 
Okay, a lot of the recruitment tactics that are used are definitely aspirational. So they're targeting people's materialism and the kind of lifestyle that they would like to have. So a lot of the social media that you'll see in relation to people who are involved in multi-level marketing, they're encouraged to be uh, demonstrating you know, the lifestyle that they've been able to achieve through their involvement in multi-level marketing, whether this is through a better car or through using these products that enhance their well-being, uh, or even you know free holidays and things like that. So there is a real push towards selling the positives of being involved, even if those positives are things that are intangible, like meeting up with friends, meeting new people, having a broader social network, being able to develop yourself and your skills. All of these are designed to be really enticing to people without highlighting the kind of work and effort and costs that are involved as well. So you don't see uh, the behind the scenes aspect of being involved in multi-level marketing and the kind of pressure and stress that the consultants are under to make sales targets or to meet the requirements of the people that are upline in the system from them. And the promises of financial independence and flexibility and work-life balance uh, appeal to a lot of people, but women do seem to be overrepresented when it comes to MLMs. Um, so can you talk a bit about the gender nature of MLMs and why women might be more susceptible to joining these companies? Okay, so one of the reasons that I think that women are more susceptible to joining these companies is partly, partly in the way that they're marketed. So a lot of people are drawn to the companies because they've experienced through their own social circles. So they've been to a party where they've tried a product that they might like or where they've bought something because they want to do a favour for the host of the party so that they'll get free product. So a lot of the time what we see is that it's women's social circles that are providing the, the new consultants coming through. So what we're seeing is that it's the kind of relationships that women have with other women, uh, the way they use social media and the way that they kind of are seeking opportunities to have their home life balance, be able to look after their caring responsibilities, be able to notionally work when it's most convenient for them that are the real drivers for women being the kinds of people that go into multi-level marketing. We also know that most of the products that are being sold are oriented towards women as well. So if we were to look at the companies in Australia that are the most successful or the best known, they typically tend to be targeting a, a female consumer base. So we're talking about makeup like Nutramedics or Avon. We're talking about kitchen supplies like Thermomix or Tupperware uh, or even homewares like candles or essential oils. They're all quite feminine type products that are made to appeal to women. Yeah. And I imagine for a lot of mums, it would really appeal to have these flexible hours when you don't have time for a classic full-time job. That's right. And I guess with the flexible hours, they're hoping that if a lot of their work is occurring on the weekends or at night, that that's when their partner, if they have one, could step in and take over the caring responsibilities so that they don't have that cost as well. Sure. And what are some of the other aspects of MLMs that your research was focusing on? One of the things that we were really interested in was figuring out whether there was a certain kind of person who was more likely to join a multi-level marketing company and what those characteristics might be. Because the research tells us that people don't 
make a lot of money, we needed to understand the people who did join them, what was their level of financial literacy or understanding. And one of the interesting things we found is that the people who invested the most time and the most effort and were most committed to their multi-level marketing company and that they had no intention of leaving typically were people who had a lower level of financial literacy but overestimated their level of financial knowledge. So there was a real misalignment between what they thought they knew and what they actually knew. So there's a bit of a process happening there where they, they think they have financial skills that they may not necessarily have, which entices them to become the girl boss, to own their own business, to um, feel that they're in control of what's happening within this business environment, despite the fact that the multi-level marketing companies are deciding how much they will charge, sometimes where their area of operation is, how often they need to sell, what they will sell, and all of those kinds of things, even the rewards that they can give to people who purchase from them. A lot of this is decided from the company. So the level of autonomy that people have is actually quite low. And the level of financial independence that people have in terms of making financial decisions is actually relatively low as well. So we were surprised and I guess a little concerned with the high levels of um, overconfidence in financial knowledge and the lower levels of financial literacy when compared to the general population of people who weren't involved in multi-level marketing that we also surveyed. Yeah, and I've noticed in reading about multi-level marketing that even though we hear a lot of research about how these companies don't make a lot of money, we don't tend to hear a lot firsthand from people. And I wonder if part of why we don't hear so much is because these companies do push such a message of optimism and, as you said, girl bossing, that often people feel ashamed or embarrassed to talk about their negative experience and how they're not making much money. Do you think that also plays a role? I personally do, yes. I do think that the shame associated with not succeeding in a business venture, uh, particularly when people are encouraged to be so forthcoming and open about the new business that they've started with everybody they know to try to entice them in as either customers or downlines. I think that the pressure associated with that is quite high. We've also found, and other research has, is that some people actually go into debt to start these uh, MLM consultancy businesses as well, which means that not only are they not making money, but they're having to pay back money as well. So there's often a degree of shame associated with that as well. And I asked before about women, are there any other groups in society who are more vulnerable when it comes to MLMs? So from what I've read, a lot of big companies in America, uh, which used to target women, have uh, moved their focus onto lower socioeconomic and migrant communities. Do you know of any similar trends in Australia? I'm not aware of similar trends in Australia. So we didn't ask people to tell us what their income was or to you know, let us know their socioeconomic status. But the research from the States, for instance, does confirm that the kinds of people that they're targeting for multi-level marketing at the moment typically um, are immigrants uh, or non-documented uh, people as well. So they're people who can't complain or who have limited choices and who become captured by these systems, uh, particularly when they have to buy a lot of product to continue their membership or to start out. So basically we're seeing communities of people 
being drawn into this and not being able to get back out again. All right. And um, finally, do you have any resources you can recommend for people to sharpen their financial literacy? Absolutely. So on the Centre for Decent Work and Industry site at the Queensland University of Technology, we have posted a number of videos that people can look at. Um, and what these videos do is that they help people to figure out whether or not they actually do have the financial literacy and knowledge to start their own business, whether it's multi-level marketing or not. So we have a survey that people can take that's the same as the survey that we gave to people where they can test their financial literacy. And they can also find out more about what the people in our study told us. So we interviewed current and former consultants to find out what they would tell someone if they were starting over. And they give some really good advice for people who are considering going into multi-level marketing so that they do so with their eyes wide open. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that was Dina Grant-Smith, Associate Professor at QUT, so Queensland University of Technology, uh, talking to me about multi-level marketing and some of the financial risks associated. Now we're going to go to a song. This is Vacuum. Uh, when we come back, we're going to hear from Justice Connect about a new technology tool they're building, which recognises the everyday speech patterns of diverse groups in order to increase access to legal help. So stick around. We'll be with you shortly.
Good morning. This is Claudia. Happy to be joining you on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And our next guest is Rouge Armidi. She's the Head of Engagement at Justice Connect, which is a charity helping bridge the gap between people in need and legal services. Rouge is part of a team building a new technology tool that will automatically understand and triage people's legal problems as they describe them in their own words. The organisation is renowned for creating smart technology that is designed with users in mind and breaking down barriers to access. Welcome, Rouge, and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Claudia. Can you start off by sharing just a little bit about what Justice Connect does for any listeners that aren't familiar with the service? Well, most people would be familiar with a community legal centre, and so that's something that we are. Um, We provide legal services from various intensities um, across different types of jurisdictions and legal matters. But we also have a little bit of a a unique value proposition for the community where we not only harness a network of 10,000 pro bono lawyers across um, various uh, firms, specialised firms, but we also build digital tech. Um, And for the purpose of not only building a social license around inclusive technology, but improving the experience of the legal um, system, especially for people who are disproportionately impacted by it. Okay, so what would be your average user? What, What sort of people are using Justice Connect? And what sort of situations and legal problems are they confronting when they contact you? So there might be someone who is facing or at risk of homelessness. A lot of women are uh, increasingly facing homelessness over the last couple of years, especially as the impacts of COVID-19 continues to be felt. It might be an older person who's been quite isolated due to the impacts of COVID-19 and may be facing financial elder um, financial abuse from a family member. It might be someone who has, you know, spent their whole life saving um, their money and they've purchased a house and the builder decides to not uh, show up or support them through that. And so they're kind of dealing with the disputes around that issue. Or it might be someone who's running a community organization and they want to make sure that their government structures are sound and their constitution is um, relevant for their purpose. So there's different types of uh, clients that we support. Um, And we also do kind of a rapid response um, for legal matters that may arise out of a certain situation like a disaster. Um, So we may support communities to be more disaster prepared or respond to disasters like bushfires or floods. And in order to understand the technology that you're building, can you just explain a little bit about how customers go about using Justice Connect? It's a computer-based service, is that right? So people can make inquiries or be referred to Justice Connect through various avenues. But through our research over the last about six to eight years, we've understood that a lot of people, especially when they're in crisis point, don't want to be sitting on the phone waiting for an answer. 
And legal service organizations like ours are facing, you know, decreasing resources. So how do we respond to increasing legal need while also facing decreasing resources? We have to be a little bit smart about it, but also test a lot of the orthodoxies around um, providing legal help. And so what we understood is that a lot of people in crisis point or who may speak English as a second, third, fourth language um, do prefer applying for legal help or applying for help online when those systems are functional and they make sense and they make kind of logical sense. So in 2018, we launched our gateway project, which included a intake tool, an online intake tool, an online referrer tool, and also our award-winning pro bono portal. And so all of those uh, different systems or different technological tools improved the people's experience of applying for legal help. Um, it lowers the cognitive load that people need to take. So while they're on the phone, they're kind of put on the spot, maybe asked a few sensitive questions. But if someone is in a crisis point or if they're a little bit confused about the legal matter that they may be applying help for, it's really important for them to take it at their own pace. And um, and a lot of the times people uh, noted that uh, through our research, through our consumer-facing research, noted that reading English is far easier and more um, uh, easier to understand than if you're on the phone and you're kind of navigating another person on the other end of the phone. Once they're through the application process, which takes maximum eight minutes on our website, then someone gives them a call back um, and does a conflict check and uh, reviews their eligibility. Um, and these tools are also designed to not only make sure that the people applying for help are receiving the right kind of help, and they're triaged by the by our um, intake staff, but also the people who are maybe applying for a legal matter outside of our scope. Sometimes people apply for legal help in family law or um, other or criminal law that we don't service. It's really important for them to know that they're ineligible rather than sitting on a phone waiting for that to be reviewed and waiting for a couple of weeks. So we're really kind of speeding up the process that people um, between the moment that people decide to apply for help and also the response rate as well. So that's really important to us. So that sounds like an incredibly efficient um, service. What were you, what did you identify that made you realize that not everyone was actually able to use it? So we were part of a research project called Joining Up Justice. Um, you can see the outcomes of it on joiningupjustice.org.au. And uh, we worked across the legal service and legal help sector and worked with our peers across um, Victoria in particular. And what we did is we mapped out the experience of a person seeking help, accessing um, that legal help and an organization providing that help. And we identified the different pain points that people experience. And one of the pain points that we experienced was that people find it really difficult to understand legal jargon. And they really, uh, you know, they find it really difficult to also diagnose their legal problem accurately. And so we did a range of research in terms of people applying for legal help. And we understood that we were creating more barriers by expecting people to understand really complicated, complex legal jargon, which actually uh, prevented people who were the most marginalized from accessing legal help. It was really overwhelming. It wasn't a positive experience. And there was a huge learning curve in order for them to apply for help. And we thought and identified that, that that was really unfair, that it should be on the onus of an organization like ours and our other organization like us, who, uh, who, 
should make it easier and more accessible, but also allow people to describe their legal problem in their natural language, which is what uh, you know what developed into our AI language processor project, which we have been developing over the last few years. But over the last few months, we've been doing extensive outreach. So the language processor is using artificial intelligence. It's not a decision maker. So it's not similar to a lot of the other artificial intelligence tools that you see in the private sector. This is a, um, a, this is a tool that will match the input of, you know, an email or um, someone describing their legal um, uh, legal problem in their own words in like a free text field or explaining over the phone. And then the language processor will um, match that kind of expression to the right legal problem, um, making it easier for lawyers to understand what has been expressed, but also making a much better and positive experience for people seeking legal help. Yes, because it was really interesting that your research showed that uh, users that weren't successfully using the service, it wasn't because of a low digital literacy. It was because of this challenge in describing the problem in the first place. So yeah. that's that's really interesting. Yeah, we did. Um, we also produced a report called the Missing Majority Report, and it covered people who and, and engaging people in workshops who seek legal help online. And what we found out is that that kind of assumption that people don't know how to use digital tools was absolutely incorrect. That people from marginalized communities are tenacious, they're resilient, and they're oftentimes on the forefront of using digital tools in really super innovative ways. And what it is, is that our responsibility as organizations is to make those tools as accessible as possible. And the only times that people don't use things or tools or self-help resources is when they're not in the correct format and they're not accessible. And so it really affirmed our ethos of making um, these tools and these services as accessible as possible. So turning now to the language tool, uh, you're doing a call out for participants to contribute words, yeah. their natural speech patterns about a legal problem. They could make one up. It could be one they've had before. Can you tell us about what you're looking for? So a language processor needs to be trained. And in order for us to apply um, the uh, recent ethical AI and inclusive technology best practice principles by the Human Rights Commission, um, we want to collect as many diverse range of language samples. Um, and in, that will train the language processor to really encapsulate and represent and be able to understand, you know, all the diverse ways that people use the English language to describe their legal problems. And so you can go on justiceconnect.org.au forward slash AI, A for Apple, I for Igloo. And uh, on that page, you can find a, um, a button that takes you to a survey that you can contribute as an individual. Um, and there's also an opportunity if you're part of a service delivery organization, you can also upload any um, samples that you collect through your intake and triage processes. And the key, I believe, is that you're asking people to, to write or speak in exactly the way they would. So you're not looking for an edited uh, version of any statement. You're looking for dialect, slang, grammar errors, shorthand, yep. bullet yep. points, exactly yep. how someone would say it. And yep. that's the, what you want to hear. Yeah, all the kind of beautiful inflections, tonalities, the different grammar, all the different ways, all the innovative ways that people use the English language, we want 
that those kinds of language samples that will make the tool richer and also more accessible to more people. Um, also, if you do submit a language sample, you go into a weekly draw to win $150. And, um, and also where like Justice Connect is really excited that once this tool is launched and effective, we want to share it free of charge to all legal service organizations. So that's really exciting for us as well. And the information that people submit will be de-identified. So if you're talking about a legal problem, it won't be um, attached to your name. Yep, Is you that... can. Uh, yep, you can. Um, all to, uh, all of the language samples before they're fed into the language processor will be de-identified. But you can read more about your privacy rights and how we're protecting them on uh, justiceconnect.org.au forward slash AI. Fantastic. And just before you go. Um, your philosophy at Justice Connect is really admirable about putting the emphasis on organisations to make the changes uh, so that everybody can use the service. Do you have a message for other organisations out there that uh, might also have a very diverse user base? Yeah, I think that uh, community legal centres and legal service organisations really face such an immense challenge with reduced um, resources while legal need continues to grow. But I think that through innovation and partnership and also uh, a human-centred design approach to delivering our services and designing our services, we can overcome the challenges together. Fantastic. Thank you, Rouge, for joining us. It's great to so uh, talk Claudia. to you. That was Rouge Ahmedi from Justice Connect talking about the new inclusive AI language model they're building to connect more people to legal help. And as Rouge said, uh, you can go to justiceconnect.org.au forward slash AI to plug in your story in your words. Back to you, Ella. Thanks, Claudia. And next up, we're going to be hearing about First People's Health and Wellbeing from the CEO of the Aboriginal Controlled Health Service. Uh, but in the meantime, let's listen to Wait In On You by Genesis Owusu. One step, two step, three. Down into the meadow. I saw the merchant with the black fur coat. He waved me over. He said, Come here, boy. No way, Let me show you my way. Dolls for sale, dolls for sale. Smiles for sale, smiles for sale. Gold, ruby, copper, diamond, whatever do you need? Anything but the real, oh, anything but the real. Anything but the real, anything but the real, you devil me. I've been laying on you and waiting on my phone. 
And that was Genesis Owusu with Waiting On You. And now over to you, Alice. We're talking to Corinda Taylor, CEO of the Aboriginal Controlled Health Service named First People's Health and Wellbeing, about the Take Your Shot campaign, which focuses on spreading health information to Indigenous communities around Australia and looks to tackle the lagging vaccination rates of Indigenous communities. So welcome, Corinda, to the show. Good morning, Alice. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Um, first up, Corinda, could you tell me a little bit about the campaign and what you're what you're looking to do with the Take Your Shot? Yeah, look, the campaign really come around because of the, like you said, the lag in vaccination rates with the third dose, um, but also coincided with, you know, the five to 11-year-old kids' um, vaccinations. We already knew that, you know, we were having lots of conversations with community about, you know, if and when their children would have vaccination rates and and a little bit of hesitancy around that. Um, And we've always said, if you've got individual concerns, um, just reach out, have an appointment with a GP and have a yarn about it. But we already preempted some concerns about the vaccination rates for both kids and for boosters. Mm. And what were the concerns that you were hearing most of them have been the misinformation on social media. So the things like, oh, I heard you get really bad side effects. I heard the side effects are worse than the actual COVID, you know, the, the actual virus. So wouldn't I, aren't I safe for just getting the virus? And the short answer is no, you're not. Um, you know, there, there's lots of evidence to support, you know, that the vaccines work and that while there is some side effects, they're quite mild and they're quite rare. So um, you know, it, it is important to get the vaccines. And as a health service, you know, we, we've always had a really strong message about the vaccines. And we have had other social media, you know, posts around the vaccines. And obviously, when we've had clinics, we've posted those and tried to put some of the, you know, myth busters in there um, around some of the really common questions we get. And most of those are around the side effects. Um, we've had other things about, oh, you know, it hasn't been studied longer term. Uh, but, it, but it's been studied a lot and by a lot mm. of people uh, and we've obviously got other countries that we're, you know, modelling off. So even by the time we went to start kids, you know, literally millions of kids in other parts, including America, had already had their shot without any really severe side effects or, or reactions. So, you know, we know it's safe and we know that people are better off getting it to protect themselves and their community. Mm. And Indigenous communities really don't need too much of a of a prompt to not trust government historically and um and what we see politically and socially now so has that also been something to combat as well there is an a mistrust in what government are telling communities to do yeah and i I think the key issue here has been that there hasn't been the voice, like really publicly, there hasn't been the voice from the ATRO sector, so the, the community-controlled Aboriginal health sector, um, around the key health messages. So it has, well, there has been obviously key health messages and there, there is great people working in particularly state government, um, you know, looking after Victorians as a whole. There has been some really key messages in there, but they get lost with that transgenerational trauma that comes from that missing, you know, the, the mistrust, that historical mistrust of government with their past policies and understandably. So for us as a Nacho advocating for communities to get a clear health message, this campaign just works. It is a simple message, take your shot. Um, and it just generates conversation. There's not, there's not a lot of information in the campaign. It's not, it's not trying to 
um, you know, answer everyone's questions. It's to generate a conversation. It's fun and fresh and funky. It's for young people. It's been, you know, it's been collaborated with young people. And it's just a really beautiful piece that, you know, we hope people will share to generate a conversation and to send a really clear health message. Please get your shot. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the video and it is really fun. It's music is at the focus of it, community, people's stories. People are also speaking about what changed their minds and and how and how they've um they've yeah, they had one opinion and they've since changed their mind and they've got their shot. And have you had much feedback from the campaign so far? Yeah, look, I think it's early days, but, you know, even just in developing the campaign and the conversations that have been generated to date have been, you know, we we reached out to Typecast. They were they were always front and centre of who we wanted to work with. Um, you know, they've got a, a reputation. Um, their other, you know, key pieces of work with Tony Briggs as a director, you know, we reached out and we collaborated, uh, you know, they're the masterminds behind the creation and and just took it to a whole new level, um, you know, with Philly Murray, you know, that rap was written, you know, for this campaign and, and we're beyond proud of that. Um, you know, he's a, he's a big supporter of First People's Health and Wellbeing, um, along with the other talents. It, it, it blew my mind when I seen it come together. Um, so I couldn't be more grateful to the team for, for creating it. Mm. And, and has it been long in the making, the campaign, or when, when did it start? It, I mean, the conversation started before Christmas um, and, you know, during lockdowns and and it felt initially like it was something we needed to do because of the hesitancy or the anticipated hesitancy because the kids and boosters hadn't really started. Um, but we also had a slower uptake of first dose and second dose, which meant that a lot of our clients, when the boosters actually started, most of them weren't eligible we were doing like one or two vaccines, whereas, you know, oh. earlier on we're doing sometimes 100 a day. So, um, you know, the the slow uptake of one and two naturally forced, you know, a slow uptake of the booster just purely because they weren't eligible. But with the time being restricted, everyone's eligible now um, and, we're, and we're still not necessarily seeing quite the uptake that we'd like. So we do hope um, that, you know, over the coming weeks that we will see an increase. We'll need to do more with it. I think coinciding with the campaign, you know, we'll need to generate, you know, very targeted specific clinics. And we do have clinics in pockets, you know, for the different age groups. Um, You know, there's logistical stuff behind that with having kids boosters not mixed up with adult boosters as well. Mm -hmm. So that's a, you know, a health sort of safety mechanism. Um, But, you know, if you can get your whole family in, you know, when when the workforce allows to have, you know, two whole separate teams doing vaccines on the one day, it's sort of this wraparound work. And and a lot of the actros are are doing very, very much that um, because it works. Mm. And ahead of Take Your Shot, if we kind of almost jump back a, a year and a half ago, maybe, what was the information like or any campaigns like for Indigenous communities? I'm just trying to work out how the how, what happened regarding the lagging vaccination rate. Where did it go wrong? What, what was the missteps that happened before? Look, I think it just was it was non-existent so let's just be clear about that you know you go back a year and a half and you just weren't hearing you know I mean obviously you know Vacho were doing some work Jill Gallagher as a CEO you know constantly advocating to have an Aboriginal voice on the ground there was loads happening you know there was a COVID task force that was largely led by Aboriginal leaders um, and you know we, we were um, you know had a seat at that table which was wonderful because we were getting rapid information again at a state level you know there was 
you know, fairly rapid response with the information that was at hand at any given time. But that then in filtering down or more importantly, having the resourcing, the funding to allow that message to filter down to communities was just non-existent in the earlier days. So, um, you know, it, it does feel late, but it's not too late. Um, I think I think actually the timing with kids' vaccines and, and the boosters, it's actually now perfect. Yeah. Mm, yeah, for sure. And does your campaign focus Victoria only or is it a wider campaign? We we strategically left the branding really minimal. You know, we, we want to have our branding as well as, we you know, we want to be able to promote typecast as the creators. Um, but it really is about Aboriginal community, you know, seeing a familiar face, whether it be in Victoria, I mean, Philly's, you know, been across the country with his work um, as is some of the other talent so I think the faces are familiar for a lot of people um, seeing an Aboriginal face in a campaign um, can be really grounding and, and can create connection you know there's no interest like self-interest so to see Aboriginal faces in this campaign um, with minimal branding it is really about go to your local you know Aboriginal community controlled health service or your AMS so your Aboriginal medical centre um, you know get vaccinated uh, so it, it is for everybody, and I do hope that other people share it across the nation. We are reaching out now to various different actors across the nation to see if they want some of the posters that have been created. They're beautiful pieces. Um, and Annie Cecily, who's happily, you know, happy to, um, you know, share her story about being, um, she wasn't an anti-vaxxer, but she really wasn't keen on it. You know, that mistrust um, for government policy uh, for the message not being from Aboriginal communities on the ground led her to, you know, really question, you know, what is it and what's the point? And it seemed like the vaccine got, you know, almost created overnight. Um, and, and that's just not the case. But she, you know, she, she did exactly what we asked. We said, have a yarn to the GP. And she did that. And she discussed her concerns. And once she had more individualised information around, you know, the impacts of COVID on people with chronic disease. And when you look at people in the Aboriginal community overrepresented with chronic disease and sometimes really complex, multiple chronic diseases, um, you know, you knew they weren't going to fare well. Our people were not going to fare well if they got COVID. So, you know, it's maybe more important to get it if you're in the community. Absolutely. And for anyone listening right now who has maybe, maybe they haven't put their booster in, you know, maybe they've got the first one, not the second one, or maybe they're on the fence and they, they honestly, they don't know what to think. What would you recommend they do? We've got a couple of staff members that haven't had their booster and are eligible. We actually had an all staff meeting yesterday, not specifically for that, but it was on the agenda because we were really proud um, with the, you know, fully vaccinated two doses that we had 100% staff double vaxxed rates when the rest of the healthcare system had about 70%. So we were really proud of that. And people often, people aren't necessarily, you know, their health isn't necessarily their top priority. Well, I can tell you that we demonstrate quite the opposite. Aboriginal people care deeply about their healthcare um, and beyond COVID, it's, it's, it's not about that they don't care. It's about, you know, accessibility and suitability and reliability and affordability and all of those things that, um, you know, where barriers are created, particularly for mainstream, that make it really difficult for someone to, um, you know, access appropriate health care. So I think with the COVID vaccines, it's not that people don't necessarily want to get it. Uh, I think 
again, that misinformation on social media about the side effects. People, oh, I've heard the, I've heard that the booster gives you way worse side effects, and I got a bit unwell with my second one. Um, I don't, ha- I can't, I can't take time off work, for instance, and and again, our 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 conversations are about have a chat with the GP. Even if it's not to get it that day, have a chat about your concerns. They can give you the stats on what the likelihood is vaguely, broadly. Um, but, you know, we do need to get it. There is now a mandate for the 12th of March and, and for the couple of staff that haven't had it yet, it's not because they won't. It's more because they're so busy at work they're like, what if I end up feeling unwell and I need some time off? Well, we've crossed that bridge, but you need to go and get vaccinated. And we're going to do it before the mandate because it's the right thing to do with a health message. Yeah, yeah. Well, Corinda, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And just for our listeners out there, um, you can head to firstpeopleshealthandwellbeing.org.au to find out heaps of information about what we've just been talking about. Um, and can people look out for the campaign? I've already seen the video, so I'm, I'm, I want to keep a lookout for some posters and stuff. Are they dotted around Melbourne? Uh, they will be so we're they've just um, just come out so we'll we'll get them circulated very shortly so yeah definitely look out oh keep a look out then folks um thank you so much Corinda it's been wonderful talking to you and for our listeners who may have just popped in that was Corinda Taylor CEO of the Aboriginal Controlled Health Service named First People's Health and Wellbeing and we were just chatting about the Take Your Shot campaign thanks again Corinda You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that's our show for this Wednesday morning. So a big thank you to all our guests, and thank you listeners for tuning in. Uh, So we'll be back with you next week. Uh, In the meantime, stick around for Stick Together. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery, and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.